Welcome back to the ALP podcast, where every week we take a light dive into this week's Torah portion. Each week we'll summarize the Torah portion. We will think about what it means to us and connect it to other Jewish texts and Judaism at large. As always, I am one of your co-hosts, uh, Paul Suleika, and I'm joined by... Aaron Rotenberg. Hey, Paul. Aaron, how are you this week? I'm doing well. A little bit sleepy because we lost an hour with the time change. I think we we got more sleep because of the time change, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, perhaps you're, you're uh, what is it called? Sometimes when you're overslept, you're, uh, you mm. get tired. So maybe you just Maybe that's sleep. it. I'm just so out of it. That is a real skill that when uh, we fall back on the, where most people feel slept in, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm actually tired. You're really, you're really bucking the trend there. So uh, no I help appreciate for me. that. Uh, what's and, going uh, on with you, Paul? Well, this weekend and this week, I went up to my family's property up north to do some raking. And uh, today, me and some friends learned how to make some traditional Eastern European potato dumplings, which is mm. very scientific. Potatoes, for those of you who might have made hash browns or potato kugel, I think the word is oxygenates. It oxygenates very quickly, so mm-hmm. it turns brown very quickly. So we had this like really fast, we had to really add onions to it quickly and vitamin C powder because vitamin C counteracts the oxygenation, but we didn't make it. They were a little brown, but tasted good. And now I feel emboldened to make potato dumplings in this upcoming winter time. So very useful skill. So let's uh, dive into this week's Parsha. I think I am the first for the one minute summer, if I'm not mistaken. I feel like there was a lot happening in this one. And this I is heard, a busy one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I listened to it two or three times. I still missed a lot. So let's see how I do. It's not all going to fit in the one minute summary in any case. Yeah, that's true. That's, so you get to make some choices. It's like life. You have to make choices. The one minute summary <laughs> is a metaphor. of You can only fit so much in a week, a day, a lifetime. What will you pick? Three, two, one. Let's go. Abraham connects with God and he's chosen to something, something covenant. And then they have to leave because there's a famine. So they go through Egypt and Abraham says, Sarah, pretend you're my sister, not my wife, because that'll prevent us from getting hurt. Um, and then all these plagues happen and the Pharaoh is like, Oh, I wish you told me that was your wife and not your sister. I would have acted differently. Um, somehow they work it out. And then I think a lot of, battles happen I'm, I'm kind of shaking the battles there's this weird kingdom called goyim that i looked into as well that comes up and then somehow abraham sarah and their handmaiden find themselves i want to say canaan and sarah can't have kids so she uses hagar and gives offers up hagar to have kids with abraham and then when she gets pregnant sarah starts to feel insolent towards her and vice versa they don't get along well and they give birth to ishmael and abraham has farmed as many people descendants as stars in the sky well done. Um, yeah, I think there was lots of great details there. I liked it. But will it be as good as the one-minute summary that I'm going to do? Let's find out. Three, two, one, go. Uh, seemingly out of the blue, Abraham and also, I guess, Sarah, are told to leave where they're hanging out. Uh, they go to... 
this new land of Canaan from Haran. And there's almost immediately a famine. They go down to Egypt, it gets a little bit complicated, and they're worried about protecting themselves. And there's a whole mix up with Sarah and Sarai at the time. And they fool the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh's very upset. They run away and escape that adventure. Uh, there's a uh, battle, or they take also their cousin Lot along with them, because there's always got to be a, that cousin that everybody loves. And there's a battle. They run away. I think I'm out of time. No? Just just. There it is. <laughs> The timer uh, always catches up to you eventually. Again, another wow. another thing we can learn from the one minute summary: time will always catch up to you. Mm. <laughs> I think I think we'll, I think we're allowed to talk about things outside of the one minute summary. Yeah, um, I'll allow it. You know, to quote every legal procedural there's ever been, I'll allow it. Great, great, it'll come up. Uh, what's some things that stand out for you in this week's parsha, Paul? I guess some of the things that stand out to me so far. Uh, I know you didn't get to in your summary, but the concept of how Sarah gives up or gives Hagar, you know, to mm-hmm. Abraham to have a child with, um, and, you know, someone who's going through the long process of surrogacy, I'm just, it makes me think like, oh, you know, yeah. interesting how families might've been formed in those times, um, you know, because, what would that arrangement look like? Would the, and I know, I think of the story of Rachel and Leah and Jacob, I believe there's some sort of similar situation. Well, we'll get to it, I guess, in future mm-hmm. weeks um, where a woman, a handmaiden is given to have a child on behalf of the matriarch of that family. I mean, that matriarch in the general sense. Um, so I just wonder what that arrangement looks like. If it's going to be that the, the, the matriarch will be act as the mother in that circumstance and will have, things cut off from the the woman who gave birth you know it's i couldn't i think actually though in this one it sounds like hagar is the mother for all intents and purposes of ishmael um i don't get the sense that there's some sort of that sarah is raising him as her own so uh i just thought that was really interesting maybe from an anthropological perspective because i don't know what society looked like back then um, or what it's alluding to. So I thought that was a really interesting one that really caught my attention was that. And it feels like there's some bit around like extra having to pray or like really want this child. And then the child ends up being very special. And it's a trope that comes up and it feels like in this trying to conceive, sometimes there's this moment of, oh, well, maybe somebody else could kind of be a stand in and. Sarah, I believe, Rachel, I believe also Rebecca even, and Hannah. I yeah, think Rebecca well. too, and Hannah. Yeah. And Hannah. Uh, there might be other ones too that I'm not remembering, but it definitely does seem to be, infertility seems to be a recurring thing. I don't know, maybe as, maybe it's also kind of trying to say a message to people that if you're not having children right away, you know, it's it's normal. It takes time. It's it's always been hard to conceive, I think, in society for humans. I think human birth is costly to biologically. So it's just probably difficult to have a baby for many reasons. So I think I do find a lot of comforts 
in the fertility stories going through myself just because it's you know it's it's hard for a lot of people it's hard for a lot of people i'm sure in our lives something that a lot of people might have a hard time talking about when i was listening to this in the car twice because i you know sometimes hearing it again and again can be helpful one of the kingdoms they mentioned was the kingdom of goyim now this kingdom of goyim that's funny because it's usually a term i believe it means the nations but we use it to refer yeah. to people who are not jewish um, so I went on the Chabad.org website again. Thank you, Chabad. Um, and I looked up Rashi's commentary based on this really easy button-clicking method they have. And Rashi's commentary was, it's called the Kingdom of Goyim because a lot of different people live there. <laughs> it's like, that's great. That's That would make sense. This country called Nations, and a lot of people live there. That's, that's why they call it Nations. A lot of different people live there, you know. So people yeah, from this place, like, people from that place, you know. Right. It's like one of those explanations where Rashi has no idea, so he has to make something up. And that's that's the obvious thing to come up with. <laughs> yeah, I was I was very that's impressed with that kind of very plain answer. There's no kind of mystical thing like, oh, it's called nations because it was the apex of all these different it's, there's a, a lot of different people live there. A lot of people live there, so we called it Goyan, because it's just these nations were there. Uh, so like was, uh, the U.S., United States. There's the, the states. They're united. It can be descriptive. Exactly. United States. United Kingdoms. Uh, united there. Nations. United Nations. That's a thing. United Na- oh, that's what it is. The original United Nations. <laughs> yeah, people don't realize. Yeah, United Nations started in, I guess, what do you call it? The Fertile Crescent. So you, uh, mm-hmm. you learned there it from the Bible first. It here. <laughs> <laughs> These things were uncovering. Did you ever want to be, maybe I've talked about this before. But when you were a kid, did you ever want to discover like a new color? Um, and you're like, oh, you know, there's red, blue, yellow, purple. <clears throat> I'll discover a new color. But obviously, you know, colors are just on a spectrum. But sometimes when I read the Bible, I'm like, I'm I'm going to find something new that, that people haven't found before. This book that's been read by billions of people from multiple religions. I'm, I'm, I'm going to find something in here that someone else might have missed. I don't um, know. I think you are. You can. I think that's the whole idea of Torah study is that there's so much to go through. Like you're setting up like the color spectrum where you can't, that colors are taken. But I don't think Torah, I think Torah always has room for what are called chidushim, like new interpretations and new explanations. So I think there'll be a whole bunch that you come up with. Yeah, that's probably true. Even when you think of the color spectrum, like a wheel, like maybe someone didn't hit this exact spot on that wheel. So uh, we'll... yeah we'll find our spot in our wheel and we'll look into the spectrum. We'll bring out our own beautiful moments. But what about for you? Was there something that kind of was your jumping off point for, for this tour portion? One of the things that I noticed and appreciated was like the respect and even reverence for people that were not in like the direct lineage of the, let's say primary family of Abraham at all. Like I, was interested by the appearance of Malchitzedek, who is this priest from some other tradition, who like is very seems to be very, very respected. Also, like some of the words that Malchitzedek uses get picked up in our liturgy that we that we use. I thought that was very neat, and also right, that Hagar. There's this tension that happens with her and Sarai after like getting kicked out, after conceiving. But then an angel comes and speaks to her 
and then like announces that Ishmael is going to be born. And then like Abraham also, when Abraham's busy chatting with chatting with God, like also intercedes to have blessings for Ishmael. And Ishmael gets like this, like promises of really wonderful nation starting. And it just seemed notable to me that it didn't feel so particularistic. It's like, okay, there's going to be some, something special happening with Abraham's family, but there's also, or Avram's family, because their names also get changed in this Parsha at the end. Avram becomes Avraham, Sarai becomes Sarah. So trying to That's use the right name at the right point. Yeah, I like what you're saying, because that didn't occur to me that there's a sort of, um, I, I like you talking about reverence of other people who aren't part of the immediate story. Um, because I think it speaks to a Jewish value. I think this is probably a later Jewish value, probably more, maybe more in the rabbinic tradition, where that people from other religions are A-OK, you know, as long as they follow certain rules, but they're A-OK in God's eyes. There's not like Jewish people are the only people who get some sort of reward in life. Jewish people are just one people. And I believe the minimum stipulation, correct me if I'm wrong, Aaron, for non-Jewish people are the laws of Noah. Everyone has to follow at least those to be considered righteous in God's eyes, according to the Jewish tradition. But I, I didn't talk the... about that last week, but that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's we true. totally skipped over the, Seth, the Noahide laws. Uh, we'll talk about it next year, the Noahide laws. That's right. Laws. We got next year. Come back. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. That I think that's one thing that Judaism gets a little bit of credit for, that for most of its history, not all of its history, but for most of its history, it was not proselytizing. Um, and it doesn't claim to be kind of this universal religion that everyone needs to be a part of, lest they be damned, so to speak. That it's kind of, I mean, on the other hand, it's that makes the religion much less sticky then, right? If there's no negative consequence of not being Jewish, well, then you, who would want to be Jewish, right? Um, but I think that is nice that it kind of speaks to that value a little bit. I'm saying that probably comes from the later rabbinic tradition, because I feel like in Genesis, people who don't believe in Hashem, Adonai, Elohim, you know, the the standard God, are sometimes punished. So definitely in parts in the Tanakh, it seems like people do get punished who don't follow this faith. But I think later on in the rabbinic tradition, it seems to be that, you know, other religions, as long as they follow Noahid laws, they're okay. And even with this Malchit Tzedek, I guess it's some priest who's working in like a totally out side a tradition that's just not abraham's avram's tradition and it it feels like this interesting like even the language that's used there malchitzedek says el elyon koneshamayim va'aretz these are just words that we say on friday night so they're like on the tip of my tongue but el elyon is like god most high and it's a. Ter- I think that Malchitzedek isn't referring to, or it's unclear if it's referring to the same God. And then Avram picks up the words and I think makes it clear that Malchitzedek says in, if you're following along at home, chapter 14, verse 18, Malchitzedek, after Avram's very helpful in getting back Lot and other people from during this war between the four kings and the five kings. Malchitzedek takes out bread and wine. He's a priest, a Kohen of El Elyon, and then blesses 
Abraham. This is now next verse 19. It says, Baruch Avram le'el Elyon, it's blessed is Avram to El Elyon, the name of this deity, maybe it's the same deity, uh, who's the maker or has acquired the ruler of heaven and earth. Da, da, da. And then afterwards, immediately afterwards, Avram has this interaction with the king of Sodom. Then Avram on verse 22 says to the king of Sodom, Harimoti yadi el Adonai, or Yudhevave, el Elyon koneshamayim va'aretz. And Avram says, I lift up my hand to write this more particular name, Yudhevave, that's connected with our people's tradition, and saying that, that this Yudhevave is El Elyon. That's the same God. Koneshamayim va'aretz. Maker, ruler of heaven and earth. So it's kind of, it feels like it's in this funny milieu. I feel, I think, interested in it because I'm, I think that I have this way of also relating to other religious traditions. That's so interesting. So you kind of perceive it as one of those kind of productive, almost interfaith moments. Like, oh, you know, we all, when someone comes together and they see kind of similarities between their tradition. Maybe this is another piece that's, Interesting. Promise that Abraham's going to be a. Avram's descendants will be a great nation. And this pact of the parts, the Brit Ben Haptarim. But there's also this like detail that, oh, but in a 400 year, you're going to, your descendants are also going to go down to a land that's not their own. They're going to be enslaved there for 400 years. It's like all this like detailed what's coming up. And then there's also like the promise of Ishmael being born, and then Ishmael is, is born to Hagar. There's the promise that Isaac is also going to be born. There's like lots of future seeing. And yeah, this seems to be a mode in at least these stories that like, oh, God could come and speak to you, an angel could come speak to you and tell you the future, sometimes in a lot of detail. And it's just who the writer is foreshadowing what's coming next. It's like a way of saying, look out, here's what's next in the story. And it's doing it in this interesting way of like, and in a dream, I'm going to give you some outlines of what com- what's coming next. Oh, yeah. You're saying it in a narrative sense. I thought you were asking me. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know it's coming. <laughs> oh, yeah. Did you know, did you know that, that that's, they're going to go, they're going to become slaves? Now let's take a break. Under the palm tree, people will come and flock. And we're back. I, I did try to look into Louis Ginsburg's Legend of the Jews for this week to see if there's any interesting stories. Nothing that interesting, but did have the recurring theme that you see in other... Uh, I don't think it's just in folk stories. I think this might also be in some canonical Jewish text that just that Abraham, even as a kid, hated idols, was always smashing idols from a young age. And his father, I believe, was an idolater and he was not having it at all. So again, the kind of... Um, I guess re-emphasizing that Abraham was iconoclast like the Jewish people came to be. Um, although I am I am very into iconoclasts, mm-hmm. but I kind of like the idea also like of you shouldn't have statues, you shouldn't name things after people or things. I I know I guess they do name things after people in the in the Tanakh, I think, but just I don't mind the 
the spirit of iconoclasticism, I think it is very helpful to not get too wrapped up in a person or an idol or a graven image, you know, because I think it could have consequences and you could look at that differently in the future. So I thought that was good advice from that folk story to the day in a time where we're really reassessing things we've named after other people. Well, I feel like we'll feel that a little bit next week. I feel like we do a really good um, cliffhanger for always the following week because I did start listening to next week's Parsha because I was driving from up north of Toronto, back to Toronto. Uh, and I just started playing the next Parsha. And I was like, oh, God is being so human in this story, almost kind of humorous to me. So uh, I think that kind of non-ephemeral, very almost human-like God, I think we're going to see some... I, I, I've I obviously read the Tanakh indirectly or directly, you know, maybe five or ten times in my life. And I was like, oh, I forgot this really funny part. So I think next week we'll definitely get to see some humanity of God, uh, which I'm looking forward to kind of doing a light dive with you again. Tune in next time we to will... LP Parsha Podcast. Yes, tune in next time to LP Parsha Podcast. This has been our light dive into Parsha. Uh, I'm one of your co-hosts again, Paul Salaika. I've always enjoyed with my... Your other co-host, Aaron Rotenberg. Nice to be here with you, Paul. Nice to be here with you too, Aaron. Until next week. Have a great week. You too. Devorah can't wait. She's got to move now. Through mountains, she's got the know how.